you know, what you want to have in a bank, in any bank, is you want to have those diverse communities represented so that you're actually serving those communities in the broader sense. And as you said, you know, when you design, when you have a default design, you're designing for, you know, just one aspect, whether it's it's men or whatever, one aspect, when in actual fact, you want to be designing products. And I think technology is there that you can do that personalization. Welcome to Don't Break the Bank, Run It and Change It, a podcast for curious minds in the financial services industry. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and together with my co-host Brian Hayes, we've both worked for over 30 years in banking and banking IT before joining VMware. In today's episode, I'm joined by Joy McKnight, the editor of The Banker. We start with a captivating journey of Joy's career, from her double major in biology and environmental studies, to a leadership of one of the most prestigious publications in financial services, The Banker. From Joy's unique position looking across the world at financial services, we'll discuss top of mind issues for the FSI C-suite, where we are heading on the open banking and open finance journey, the incredible potential for gender-focused financial services, and the realities of the report card on where we are in DEI in banking. Let's get started. Welcome, Joy. Great to have you with us today. Well, thanks so much for inviting me on the podcast. Thank you. So, Joy, can you give us a quick intro about you and what you do? So, I'm Joy McKnight. I'm editor of The Banker Publication, which is part of the Financial Times Group. So, it's a trade publication and it's almost 100 years old, actually. So, it's been serving the banking community for a very long time. I have a team of about seven editors and then also three reporters, which is a new addition to the banker. So I manage the you know weekly, monthly workflow of the whole team. The interesting thing about the team is that we're all based in London, but we actually cover the globe in terms of the international banking community. And we also cover the gamut of the banking industry, so everything from investment banking and capital markets, all the way through to retail banking, etc. But our editors, even though they sit in, in London, they actually do their regional visits a couple of times a year, which is really interesting because then you're, you talk to the banks on the ground in different markets and really get an insight into A, their challenges, but B, the new things that they're doing and all the innovation that's happening across the banking industry. So I have to say, I, it's a for me, obviously, I might say this, but... It's a great publication, uh, and it's really is really interesting to get sort of the state of play of the banking industry. We also run a lot of rankings, so we have associated with the bankers the banker database, and our sort of flagship ranking is the top one thousand World Bank rankings, which goes into the July issue of the Banker, and that ranks banking banks by tier one capital around the world. So again, it's a really good state of play of the banking industry. Well, I can absolutely say many a time I have seen um, the, the, the Banker magazine, uh, n- not just in the waiting room of the C-suite of the, of the biggest banks in the world, but in their offices too. So, uh, yeah, well, that's I absolutely, fantastic. Yeah, Thanks for uh, saying that. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah, absolutely. So then, Joy, look, from a career perspective, how did you get started and how did you end up here? Well, I have to say it definitely wasn't a straight line (laughs) to get to be the editor of The Banker. And I actually went to university and did a double major in biology and environmental studies, which is interesting. And actually, it's quite good now because obviously a lot of the banks are really looking at uh, ESG and sustainability criteria metrics, etc. But so that's what I started. And then I came to the UK. So I'm Canadian and I came to the UK in the in the early 2000s and got a job on freelance job on Computer Weekly. And that's really what turned me on to sort of the tech side of things, technology side. And then I was made redundant during the dot-com bubble burst. But then I, a few years later, I got a job on banking technology. So that married the technology and the banking. And then I worked on a few publications around corporate treasury, etc. And then joined the banker team in 2015 as technology and transaction banking editor. So those are my two passions. Mm-hmm. It's technology, but then also transaction banking, because it's a fantastic area of banking. You know, it's very relationship based. The people in it are super interesting and it really drives the whole economy of the world. You can really see its impact. Uh, so, yeah, so that's how I got here. But again, not a straight path for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I can imagine. So so what were you planning on as your career path? What, what, what did you want to do leaving school? 
Oh, well, leaving school, that was even a long, you know, a whole nother time before that. <laughs> uh, I think when I left school, I really wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> so obviously that didn't work out either. <laughs> uh, but I was always really interested in journalism because, again, it's, it, for me, it's so interesting. Like, what I love about it is being able to talk to people, being able to understand sort of new things you know, new trends that are happening, you know, finding out things that I just never knew existed before. And again, talking to people, having that interaction, etc. And then creating a story out of it. So always looking at it. So whenever I do write a uh, feature for the banker, I'm always thinking about it from the banker, from a banker's perspective of like, okay, what would someone need to know who's working in the banking industry? What would be of interest to them? What do they need to know from this article? That would help either, you know, advance their knowledge or, you know, they could pick out the people that are real movers and shakers that they could contact, that they might know, etc. So really trying to help the banking community as a whole, you know, come together, collaborate. So it sort of marries all of those things that I, I really love. And I think that's what uh, attracted me to being a journalist. So looking back then, what would you say has been your career defining moment? <gasps> well, yeah, that's a tough one, actually. <laughs> but uh, I well, I have to say one of maybe I could say it from a different perspective, which is sort of one of the best interviews I ever had, or one of the ones that really made an impact on me was to interview the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, and it was just an absolutely fascinating interview. And we did it during COVID, which was a shame because I would have loved to meet her actually in person. But it was such an interesting. It was before the annual meetings. When was it in, in 2020? And so she had just been appointed. So it was like a, a pivotal interview for me. Wow. So so this may have answered that question, but what's been your proudest moment from a professional perspective? I guess becoming editor of The Banker and becoming the first woman editor of The Banker in the history uh, of The Banker in its totality. So as I said, it was it's coming up to its 100th year. And so to be the first woman editor is actually the proudest moment. Fabulous. Well, I don't know how we top that. So let's move on <laughs> to um, our deep dive. Ben and I did a real deep dive. All right, uh, let's get into it. We'll find out everything there is to know. So Joy, you know, you get to see a whole lot of things that are happening in the industry. You get to commentate on a lot of things that are happening in, in the industry. You know, what do you see at the moment? It's kind of like the current momentum. I think there is a huge momentum around ESG, environmental, social and governance, you know, a real focus on on those criteria and sustainability across the board. And I think you've really seen just this massive uptick since COP26 in Glasgow and just the amount of effort that the banks are really putting into that, not only in their own operations, but also in their clients' operations, but also looking, you know, at how they're funding the transition to a net zero environment. And again, there's been a lot of focus on the E, which is very, you know, maybe slightly easier to measure, etc. But I think even now there's more focus on the S, which is really important as well. So we've seen this massive momentum building. And we see it, especially when it comes to we have our Bank of the Year awards, which we give awards to banks in about 120 countries. And you really saw that embed that kind of criteria embed in the last couple of years. We also see it in our invest investment banking awards. So all the big investment banks, some of the really interesting and quite innovative and, and new instruments that they're bringing to the capital markets, I think is really fascinating. And again, I think, you know, the pressure of the impending climate crisis, which is what we're facing at the moment, really necessitates the banks to act. And what I feel is that they are doing that. Right. So they're t taking it very seriously. They're, you know, as I said, moving into actually into the whole supply chains of their of themselves, but also of their corporate clients. Um, and I think, you know, this is what we need to actually make a huge change. That's very, uh, very interesting because I'd got I'd got sustainability as one of the things I wanted to talk about. So and, and, and now it may be from a slightly more contentious angle. So I, I'm good for you to put me right on this. So sustainability kind of gets kind of caught up with greenwashing. Yeah. And, and 
you know, you kind of, for me, you kind of go through the kind of the good PR leading into carbon credits. Mm. So, you know, I, you kind of, I kind of feel like, yeah, we're going to say all the right things, but we might not actually do all the right mm. things. But then I've also noticed a change in the last, maybe the last 12, 18 months. I've seen the CFOs getting far more involved where previously perhaps it had been PR, marketing, COO, those that were perhaps those that were perhaps contributing to to the problem rather than rather than solving it. So where do you see those that are the most successful and really walking the talk? You know, is it is it a CFO responsibility in leading the charge or or is there a or is there no really, you know, easy way of describing it or determining where that needs to be? Well, I think it has to be an enterprise-wide thing, for sure. And I just wanted to address the first part of your question, which is around greenwashing, which obviously there have been you know, some banks being taken to court around it. So it's a, it's a real thing. And I think the banks are really looking to address that. But I guess you know, the problem is on one side is that the parameters and the, there's, there's no framework, you know, a hard and fast framework in play at the moment, even though it's under development, but the standards, the framework. And so, you know, that does leave banks open to the uh, accusations of greenwashing, right? But I have to say, it's interesting, we just did this sustainable revenues ranking that we do with Corporate Knights, which is a sort of consultancy company out of Canada that actually tracks this. And it was looking at bank sustainable revenues. So revenues that come from sustainable activities, and what is impressive, so we started it last year. So last year was the inaugural ranking, and then we just published it in our October issue that's, that, that went to uh, the IMF and World Bank meetings recently. But I thought what was interesting is just the change year to year was actually quite dramatic. And I think that is because, really, because these standards are coming into more into play, becoming more solidified. And so the banks can, and the banks are actually really trying to track exactly what they're doing. Right. So before the reporting is also very difficult, right, because some report under different standards or frameworks, etc. So I think that whole thing is starting to sort of to gel a bit more. And so it becomes, you know, the banks are doing a better job in actually reporting that, which then also helps to actually, you know, combat the accusations of greenwashing, etc. But up until now, it's been it's a been a, it's a been a, it's a completely moving target. And I have to say, it's not going to. You know, it's it's going to take a quite a long time for act, for it to actually come together in a proper standard for banks to report against, etc. But I think the banks that aren't doing something, I think that's that's a bigger problem than the banks that are trying to do something. But in uh, in terms of your point about the CFOs, in actual fact, we just went to press on our November issue, and we had a we have what we call the Better Banking column. And this month, it's actually written by Fabrizio Palmucci, who is from Climate Bond Initiatives. And the Climate Bond Initiative actually did a whole survey based on thirty CFOs and how and looking at how important it is for them for CFOs to play that vital role in driving the low carbon transition by leveraging their expertise on the one hand, but also, you know, it's because of their role within capital allocation and fundraising, right? So they can, they come to the table with a lot of very specific and technical knowledge that again, actually will play a huge role in helping the banks move to a low carbon emission world and help the rest of the world do it, all their clients, etc. So that's one aspect of it. But I think in his, in his, uh, in his article, he really made the, the point that it's really crucial for the CFOs to be involved. So I think that that role, you know, and what, you've, what you said in terms of that changing, what they're, where, you know, how they're getting, becoming more involved, I think is a really critical step. Yeah, and actually, as you're just talking then, it made me actually think, if thinking about the, the the reporting that has to be done and the amount of rigor that goes behind the reporting that now needs to be done, actually it makes tons of sense it being with the CFO as well mm. because of the obligation on reporting. So yeah, 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 exactly. And but it's so interesting. So again, I was doing these interviews for the sustainable uh, banking revenues ranking, and what was interesting is that you know the banks that I spoke to they would talked about how 
you know, the reporting changed year on year because they were including new things. They were changing definitions on one thing. But for the people that were putting together the ranking, it was actually very <laughs> difficult because they're like, yeah. okay, we can't, you know, you, you can't do a like-to-like, year-to-year comparison. So it's quite difficult. But again, I don't think, like, I think, you know, those kind of things are going to continue to change and expand yes. and grow uh, over the next few years. So I don't think, uh, you know, and to be honest, I'm not even sure that we'll ever come to quite an end state because I think new things can be in, uh, included. So let's say biodiversity and nature, that's something, yeah. that's a new thing that's being added. And I think that's really important as well. And then, like I said, that social aspect, I think, yeah. is also yeah. coming to the fore. Very good. Very good. Well, I guess you don't want to normalise on the wrong criteria, right? So, yeah, it's very, yeah, very interesting. So that's that's the thing that you kind of think's getting the momentum. Let me just change your pivot that slightly. Then, again, from your unique position of being able to observe all of the all of what's going on, you, you know what what gets reported on, but no one really gets it yet. You know, I, I'll call it what, where the penny hasn't quite dropped. What what do you see there? Well, I think something that's been percolating for a long time and maybe doesn't get as much airtime as other, let's say, emerging technologies like generative AI. Right? So yeah. <laughs> I should have said at the very beginning that has, you know, at the beginning of the year, definitely that's just kicked off. The chat GPT, you know, really kicked off. Uh, and it's been the buzz on a lot of the conference floors that I've attended. But I think and I think what's really interesting is is open banking and then not just open banking, but that move to embedded finance and open finance. So actually I was at a open banking expo and I chaired a panel on whether you, the UK was losing its open banking crown because obviously it was one of the first jurisdictions to really move forward on open banking. But now there's a lot of other jurisdictions that have caught up and some would say maybe even leapfrog. So you think of Brazil and also Australia is doing some interesting things, a lot of different Asian countries, actually. So there's been a lot of a big shift. And so it was an interesting debate about whether the UK and Europe was really holding on to its crown. But I think that the potential of open finance, and I'll go to the next step. So like, obviously, you have open banking, which is in play, but also open finance, where you can actually you know, control all your financial, every kind of financial flow um, uh, seamlessly, hopefully, uh, is uh, I think that is that is the most interesting thing. And I think it's sort of like, especially in the, UK, in the UK, I think it's underplayed quite a bit. But in actual fact, I think that's going to make a huge impact on the on the banking industry. And it already is when you think of banking as a service. A lot of banks are already starting to think about that. They're thinking about embedding their services in other platforms or other apps. Then they're also thinking about creating their own super apps so that everyone can, you know, work through the banking app to access other lifestyle, you know, activities that you want to do, etc. So I think that's really interesting. I also think so there's two there's two other things that sort of are related to this. One is is around not just because obviously at the moment open banking is really focused on the consumer, the retail end of banking. Right. But I remember actually from the from very early on, Enrico Camerinelli, who I know from IT group, and he was always talking about how, you know, open banking, open APIs, etc., is not just about shouldn't be just about the consumers, but in actual fact will play a huge role in in some small and medium sized enterprises and all the way up to the corporates. Right. So as well. So having that free flow of information and being able to really, you know, understand their own flows, right? Uh, and being and having banks being able to offer, you know, at the point where they really need it, different financial uh, services or financial products and stuff, all of a sudden that just opens up this huge other world uh, and actually makes, again, sort of a lot of people call it embedded finance because it can happen, you know, almost behind the scenes where you don't, you just need like a one click and you, you have a mortgage, you don't have to, you know, fill out the forms and get a like that whole thing, get approvals, etc. But then critical to all of that, it's <laughs> the other thing that I was thinking about, which is really around digital identity. So I think that's something that the UK hasn't quite cracked, obviously, but other other com uh, other countries have. I think about India with uh, its Adhar program and, and just the amount of financial inclusion that that enabled 
and people having control over, finally having control over their financial flows. And, you know, just the opportunity that it opens up to have a proper digital identity, the opportunity that it opens up to access, you know, all sorts of things. So your financial services, but government services, everything else, you know, the thing that, you know, sort of completes your whole life in totality. And so I think I think it was a couple of days ago that it's in Australia that in actual fact the banks are starting to provide that uh, certification sorry <laughs> the certification of digital identity which again I think is the perfect you know role for banks and actually I wrote an article about this about maybe it was about 2016 which is really about how the banks could be the pivotal you know trusted source of, of certifying digital identity and holding that because it's like, you know, you trust the bank to hold your money. You should trust the bank to hold your data as well, holding that and allowing, you know, only a certain amount of information that you want seen to be shown at different points when you need that authentication. Uh, so, yeah, so that was a lot in, uh, in a very, like a lot of things in a very no, no, no. Uh, short thing. But I think that, like, I feel that those things are all connected, right? So, yeah. so I did take a few <laughs> notes as you were talking there because uh, uh, so there was a there's a bit in here that I was going to ask you about because I, I know I know they're hot topics for you, but but I, I do want to read your article that you wrote now on on this topic. I will go back. Um, I've been a subscriber to the banker for many years, so I'm going to go back through my issues to see if it's one that I have still, um, and I will go look. Um, so, so I think it, what is interesting, without trying to get too political in, into the conversation, or maybe maybe political is where it needs to be, I do find it interesting that there's, there would be a level of acceptance of a bank holding your identity and, and not necessarily having a national identity card so it's almost like a there's a there's i think the jurisdictions countries where a national identity card has been there forever actually a digital identity provider kind of just like this it's just an evolution of a, of a step that, that that's already been there where in other places and obviously here in the uk in particular there is such a level of distrust animosity, misunderstanding. I, I think it's interesting you could see the bank stepping into that place or financial services firms stepping into that place. And and, and actually, you're, you're bang on right because as part of a KYC process, a bank has to confirm your identity at least once. And once they've got that, then why can't they broker that for you if that's what, if that's what you want to do? So I, I think it's a very interesting, I do think it's a very interesting topic and 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 but but do you think it's do you think it's more political than than perhaps just technology and 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 social factors catching up yeah well i think it's also about culture right so i think that's you know and that trust trust in government etc trust in your banks so it would be like for me just the point that you made that in actual fact the banks have to do kyc you know your customer they have to do that Right. So they already have that information. So can they, you know, do consumers or, you know, trust them enough to then be able to hold that? But I also think, if you, you know, if the bank's holding your money, that's also very important. Right. So you must trust them to some degree. But again, yeah, I think a lot of jurisdictions around the world are, are, are struggling with this. And I know in Canada, I think it was part of that article I wrote, at one point Canada was working with the banks and I think also the post office or something to, again, to create this repository. But you have to really trust that you have to trust the tech at the end of the day that it can't get hacked, right? So uh, in the article, as I just keep pitching that article, which was <laughs> a long time ago, so it's probably, you know, some of it wouldn't be up to date. But I think at that time, I, I um, concluded the article with a little bit on the on blockchain, because obviously that was a real buzzword uh, as generative yep. AI is this year. <laughs> I feel it's the same at Cybos, a uh, big banking conference, you know. You know, in 2015, you know, all yep. of a sudden blockchain bursts out onto the scene and everyone's talking about all the different things blockchain cl- chain could do. And some were testing out whether blockchain could actually solve that digital identity repository issue, 
right? So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if it's un- if it's unhackable, etc., you know, whether that could actually put that trust in the technology there. So, uh, yeah. So it's a fascinating discussion. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. Well, and and I think beyond there, it goes into people's people's view of whether their data or how their data could be monetized. And, you know, this could be very much a thing that that is in favor for the banks without it being, you know, that you can monetize the data without divulging the data. So I think as a, again, I think it's very, very interesting. Maybe, maybe there's a refresh on that article with, you know, lose blockchain and insert gen AI or something. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I also think, yeah, I think, you know, it's about having control over your data as well. Yeah. Right. And only, you know, only sharing what you need to share in order to get that approval or or do whatever you want to do so not sharing extra information like everyone uses that example which i still think is quite a good example which is about okay when you you know when you have to show your id to buy alcohol you have to show you show your id but on your id it has your name it has your address it has everything including your date of birth right yeah, so yeah. you're showing a lot of information in actual fact you only need to say yes i'm over 18 or over 21 or not. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah, mm. really good point. Okay, so so that's the things that that are getting talked about and reported on, but maybe the penny hasn't quite dropped, although it actually it sounds like it sounds like there's progress there. Mm. What about things that maybe aren't getting enough airtime with the bankers that you know that's important but but not coming up in the conversations? I think one of the things I've been thinking about a lot but I haven't seen a lot of coverage of it, is really about using a gender focus when designing financial services and products, right? So designing financial services products with women in mind. And I think I went to the World Women's Banking Conference, which was really interesting. It was in Mumbai, which was amazing, in, in May. And I thought that was one of the things that really came out is looking, you know, looking at, at at gender data gender data and and actually unpicking that and then fo- you know finding out what makes sense not just for you know um you know male customers but also female customers because a female's life yeah life journey can be very different right and if you're just designing products for men with men in mind then you know, you're actually missing out. If you think about like, let's say a lot of women, you know, take a mid-career break in order to have children, etc. But that makes actually pensions very difficult, right? Because they haven't paid in the same amount as men because of this thing. So why not design a pension for women, right? <laughs> Specifically, etc. So anyway, so I thought that was, I think that's something that I think a lot of banks really need to to think about. And one of our new reporters, Alia Shebley, she's just actually written a short news analysis piece on some some recent research that has been done around this. And I just think, yeah, I think it's going to come to the fore more and more because you just think, you know, women now, you know, women are at least 50%, if not more, of the world's population. So why isn't there more things actually designed for women? Yeah, it's a very good point. And, you know, I'm guilty of not having thought about it like that. I, I mean, I think a bit about how products are being designed or services are being designed more from a financial inclusion at, at, at ends of the spectrum, be that, the, you know, uh, my parents who uh, who don't get, you know, can't go to the high street to go to a branch bank anymore um, and and the dependency they now have on technology, which is something they've not grown up with. So I kind of think about it from that perspective. And then maybe those that are unable to get banking and, and, and you know, how that starts. So, so I, I kind of thought of it from those perspectives, but not actually, I, I almost like, it's almost like there's a, dare I say, there's almost like there's a lowest common denominator. It's, it's kind of like an unintended thing of, oh, well, we need a product rather than, oh, there's some attributes within this product that really are going to work for this, for this group versus that group uh, you know and and as you say there are some very different realities that are being missed i'll say not that aren't being catered for they're just being missed and, and there's a great opportunity there 
Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. And then also, I, it, you know, you can apply that in so many different ways. And again, the Women's World Banking actually does a lot of work around this. They do a lot of research, but they also help capacity build in different countries, etc., around and helping not just, let's say, central banks, but also commercial banks really start to look at how they tailor their services more to women. Uh, and, you know, and it all comes to, as you said, it comes to financial inclusion, but also uh, female empowerment, etc. Uh, and then, you know, getting funding to women entrepreneurs um, is also a big thing that they're working on, which I think is really important. Okay. Right. I'm going to ask you afterwards if you can send me a link to that, the event that you went to, so we can put it in the show notes. So if okay. anyone wants to kind of look a bit further, that, that'd, be, that'd be super. So, so kind of carrying on on that theme, I think this is going to be controversial, I'm about to ask, but I, I kind of feel I want to ask it anyway. And, and moving on from, from thinking about FS from a gender lens, where do you think we are in FS from a, from a diversity, equity and inclusion perspective? Uh, you know, it's something that's been talked about for a really long time. Mm. I feel it's something that's been looked, or certainly mm. in the in in the management roles I've had. You know, it's been talked about for a very long time. Do you think? And this is why I know it's controversial because I know I'm sure I know the answer to this, anyways. But you know, do you think it's something that has just started? Do you think it's something that's almost done? Do you think? Yeah, what does the scorecard re- really look like from? from the lens you have across across the industry, across the world? Well, yeah, as you point out, it's definitely started, that's for sure. But I still think we have a long way to go on that journey. I think a lot of banks have put a lot of focus on D&I over the past few years. And of course, that, you know, when you look at it from a, gender, from a gendered lens, right, you can really see that there has been some impact. But at the same time, it, it hasn't been enough it, in terms of all the different levels within the banks. Uh, and I think that's really important when we talk about designing for women, designing financial services products for women. What you really want is to have, you know, women as part of that designing culture, yeah, totally. etc. But also, you know, working at all the different levels of the bank. And I just remember like the OMF survey, they do a gender balance index every year. And this was its 10th edition that came out earlier this year. And it just sort of shocks you, really, when you see it in those kind of numbers. But it says it's going to take 140 years to reach gender parity at the rate where we're going at the moment. So obviously, I think there needs to be a lot more <laughs> action. And, you know, and you know, we have to get to the root issues of, of why there isn't gender parity. But obviously, that's just one aspect of D&I. And I think, you know, there's a whole bunch of other areas to look at when we talk about diversity and inclusion. Uh, and that goes across, you know, all the different kind of metrics. And I think, again, the banks have started to look at it. They're definitely making improvements and they're definitely tracking it, which I think is really important. Um, uh, and that goes across everything, you know, uh, whether it's ethnic background, uh, you know, uh, neurolog- neurological diversity, um, LGBT plus diversity as well. I think, again, you know, what you want to have in a bank, in any bank, is you want to have those diverse communities represented so that you're actually serving those communities in the broader sense. And as you said, you know, when you design, when you have a default design, you're designing for, you know, just one aspect, whether it's it's men or whatever, one aspect, when in actual fact, you want to be designing products. And I think technology is there that you can do that personalization. You will be wanting you want to design, you know, services and products that actually, you know, actually speak to a whole bunch of different people and in all their identities as well, right? Because people, you know, you think of, you know, people aren't just one identity. They have a, a lot of different aspects to their identity. So speaking to them almost on a personal level, I think is really important. Well, I, I think it just reinforces that thing. If, you know, you design it for what you know, but if what but if what you know is as narrowly as what you know, rather mm. than rather than a, a larger representation knows, you, you, you're never going to get that bit right, are you? So, um, so I think. But the 140 years is yeah, it seems shocking. crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, oh it just, I really it just like made me take a deep breath. Yeah, yeah. So whilst we say we've started, it's kind of like we've only just 
almost started. Right. Okay. I was as you were talking, I was trying to think through my in my career. So in the in the last six years where I've been in a tech company, three of my five bosses have been female. And early That's in my fantastic. career in banking. Yeah. yeah, early in my career in banking, I had female bosses, but late as 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 I as I'll say it's you know, as I grew in seniority and as time went by, I had more peers that were women. And then and my my own management team, we were 50-50. But that was an exception rather than the rule. But I, but I'm trying to think back to when was the last time I had a female boss in banking. And it was quite a long time. As I say, I had, I had some fabulous peers and fabulous team. But at those, the 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 kind of the upper levels, it 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 soon, it soon reduces down. So interesting. interesting. And also, I think like I have to say, the banks are making great progress, or at least good progress. But the fintechs, the very small fintechs, like fintech startups, etc., there is still a dearth of female uh, founders and CEOs. And again, there are female founders out there, but they're not getting the funding, maybe. That they should that a male counterpart would be getting right, right. Well, and that yes, I mean that feels like that's that's can be right at the beginning of the of how this can change, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Well, that's kind of sober. Uh, it's also sobering because I have four daughters, oh. and and you know I'm thinking, right. you know, okay, it's got <laughs> yeah. got to think about this from a lot of different perspectives. Mm. Okay, so and you might have already started to answer this as well, but uh, from a different from a different perspective, so. What do you see that big banks are doing that smaller ones are not and vice versa? You know, what are the smaller ones doing that the big ones are not? So, you know, are there any obvious things that where people are doing things differently? Well, I guess the big banks, just because of their size and their resources, I think they have maybe engaged with the fintech community a, a bit more, right? Because they've had the ability to have people that have that can go out there, that can look at the fintech community, that can build relationships, that can actually see through, put them in, you know, and put them in contact with the, you know, the area of the bank that, you know, is most applicable for it, etc. Whereas the smaller banks just really don't have that capacity to do that. And so I think in many ways, that's how the big banks have sort of leapfrogged, leapfrogged uh, ahead in terms of their technology, you know, sort of refresh, etc. So I think that was that's maybe an area where the smaller banks haven't been able to really access, you know, what's going on as much. That's why, like years ago, I did this a series, a video series called Tech Talks. <laughs> it was really it went on for about five years, and I interviewed maybe about two hundred fintech startups and mostly in London but when I'd go to different conferences in different places I'd go on the road with my video team and and things like that but it was pretty what the reason why I did it was to give the banks sort of little vignettes into the new you know technology new business models that are coming through from these fintech startups and to give you know to allow them from wherever you are in the world to see what's happening etc so I feel like the the smaller banks maybe didn't have that same kind of access, didn't, weren't able to set up like their own incubators, for example, and things like that. I'm trying to think of like in terms of what the smaller banks are doing, uh, you know, better than the bigger banks. Like obviously, you, you know, you could divide the smaller banks into the challenger banks, which are new and, you know, are, are already, let's say, based in the, you know, on the on a cloud core and things like that have like state of the art tech and, and et cetera. But then there's also the smaller, let's say, community banks all around the world. And again, they're, they're just starting to, to, to make this sort of catch up in terms of replacing, you know, their tech stack to actually, you know, develop more. But, you know, I always think there's a great role for them to play, too, because they serve a specific community that really needs them, actually, that, you know, in terms of financial inclusion, et cetera, that maybe don't have access to you know, you know, the mainstream products from other banks, etc. So I think it's a there's they still play a very important role. Very interesting. All right. So we have covered so much ground there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's um let's move now to our crystal ball. 
I see the future. Really? Well, what do you have, a crystal ball? What's gonna happen? Listen, if you know something, you gotta tell me. So, what do you think is going to be one of the most significant game-changing technologies for 2023 and early 2024 and, 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 and beyond? And how do you think that's going to help or hinder financial services? I know that everybody talks about generative AI. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that is going to uh, be, be a game-changer. And obviously, people are just starting to talk about how that's going to happen. But I'm going to be slightly different. And I'm going to also look maybe a bit further out from this year or next uh, and talk about quantum computing. So I do think that is going to be a huge game changer, not just for the banking industry, but across the board. But like all technologies, not only is there huge potential and opportunities, but there's also some threats as well. So, you know, a lot of people, again, I wrote an article a few years ago on on quantum and the application within the banking industry and just sort of looking and obviously, you know, uh, quantum supremacy is not quite there. (laughs) It hasn't quite happened, but still banks are looking, you know, at the potential of how it could impact their businesses. So that was really the focus of the article. But it was also looking at, you know, the ability of quantum to break sort of the cryptography of today. Yeah. Right. So it opens up quite a bit of threats there. But then obviously what else, you know, what could it do in terms of actually helping the banks do their jobs better? And of course, some of the banks... A lot of the banks that are more most interested is uh, ones that have big investment banking arms to them, and uh, you know their ability to, you know, to do different algos, etc., and just you know generate a market intelligence. You know that's where they're applying it or thinking that that would be the you know and get you know get those trades in earlier, etc. Uh, I think that's the the greatest application. But I do think for a lot of banks, I think it's really important for all any kind of new technology, even if it's not in the near future, is to try to start to build up that capacity within the bank and to understand it. Because the problem is, again, when you get into things like quantum, which nobody understands, I don't understand it, (laughs) uh, that uh, you need to have the talent in-house or at least have some access to talent that can understand it and can break it down to you, you know, and actually help you. Because you know, help you stay abreast of those different developments. Because the problem is, is that sometimes if something starts to break, and I think about that in terms of the generative AI earlier this year, all of a sudden, you know, something really happened. And then everyone's scrambling around to try and find, you know, the people, the talent that really understand it and that can apply it. And the thing is, if you're too far behind the curve and you haven't seen it coming, then you're already so far behind that you won't be able to access that. And again, the big thing that all the banks are facing today is that talent war, because it's not just, you know, because it's tech, it's tech talent war, (laughs) because it's, you know, and you're, you're coming up against, you know, the big tech companies, you're coming up against everybody, because everybody, you know, is trying to draw that talent and things. So how, you know, banks really have to look at that pipeline of talent and what they need for the future. That's a fabulous, that is a fabulous one. I mean, the the, the post-quantum cryptography issue, I think, gets a lot of, a lot, it gets a lot of airtime thinking, thinking about it. But, but I think the bit that kind of gets forgotten is unless you've got quantum safe crypto keys now, any data that is, that is collected now will be broken instantly once, once quantum's here. So I, I think it's I think it's, it's it's fascinating area, absolutely fascinating. Great choice, great choice. Okay, let's move on then to our lightning round. Ah, uh, we usually call it the lightning round. Okay, welcome to super awesome bonus lightning round. The lightning round begins now. So. This, this is what it's all about, really, Joy. So this is our fast and fun round. A pass is okay, 
But we'll probably heckle you the next time we we have the opportunity to kind of find what the real answer oh, was. Okay, so. fantastic. Yeah, that's what will go up on uh, social media, right? Yeah, well, that would be the one. Yeah, if you ever get the chance, ask Joy McKnight this. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so seriously, a pass is okay, but you know, uh, it's really your choice, and 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 it's really just to get to know you a bit better, and and you know, and some of these are really serious, and some of them are really crazy. So, let me start with something really nice and easy. What's your favourite book or movie? Well, I have to say I love movies and books, so this is a really hard question to answer. But I think in terms of movies, my favourite, long-time favourite, is Harold and Maude. I don't know if oh, you wow. know it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Bud Course and Ruth Gordon. But it's... And I've I've watched it so many times, and it's just so... It's quite simple on one level, but it's really deep on another. And you know, it, it taps into sort of the the youth alienation during and after the Vietnam War. It taps into that. It taps into sort of the an, an older generation that has gone through something equally as horrific and yet still lives and loves to live. And and I have to say Ruth Gordon, she's just so amazing in it. And, and it just so, and it has that great soundtrack from Cat Stevens. So it has like tons of things, but it's it one has, of the, yeah, it's sort of like, the my go-to movie when I want to feel a little bit sad, but then also, you know, a bit positive for the future. Outstanding. So much better than the answer I gave to my one of those. Okay. <laughs> if you weren't doing this right now, what would you be doing? Oh, you mean immediately? I'd be working on uh, some spreadsheet thing. <laughs> I have to come up with some. Uh, or do you mean what I would like to do if I wasn't you can doing ask this? The question anyway you like. What you can't do is pass. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. What I'd like to be doing is swimming. <laughs> okay. not working on a, a, a travel budget spreadsheet <laughs> okay all right so if you had a time machine would you go back in time or into the future uh, into the future for sure okay so what's your favorite place of all the places you've traveled to i think mexico i love mexico i love i just love everything about it okay <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and I've traveled a lot no, of no. different parts of Mexico. Yeah, well, yeah, and I, I love know. it all. So, and I love the people. I love every, you know, there's so much about it. Yeah. Fabulous answer. Fabulous answer. Who's your mentor or who have you been most inspired by? Ooh, that's quite difficult. I don't have a mentor, but I, well, I would, I sort of say that. But in actual fact, I'm involved in two mentoring relationships. And technically, I'm the mentor. But to be honest, both of them, I think, are mentoring me. So they are my mentors. And they're both just super amazing women. So one, I was connected through the 30% Club. So again, I was when I was you know, introduced as the mentor versus the mentee, I was a bit like, oh, I think it should be the other way around. And we've continued our, our, our mentorship, mutual mentorship for like about two and a half years now. I think it was only supposed to last about six months. So you know, <laughs> when you just meet someone that you really, yeah, that you just have so much in common. So we're really helping. Yeah, it's just a great we have like a monthly meeting, and we continue to do it. And the other one is a younger woman who's actually based in Vancouver, in a fintech. And again, she I think she's mentoring me more than and I'm mentoring her. So they're both my mentors. There we go. I know that's great. Well, so that's a 360, which is super. And reverse mentoring, there's mm. a lot to be said for it. Absolutely. So what piece of career advice do you wish you could have given to your younger self? I think it's being confident of the value that you possess and can add. Because I think, I think, and this is, I would have to say, maybe something that a lot of women have problems with is really to understand their value and be confident about that. That's a great one. When was the last time you used cash and what was it for? Actually, I used cash about two weeks ago up in, up in Edinburgh. <laughs> I was coming off the pent, I was walking the Pentlands and came down and went to buy um, a drink at the local shop. And they said they would charge me extra if I used my card. <laughs> so I gave them cash. But I always, wow. I have to say, I know, I always carry 20 quid with me, no matter what. Yeah. Because it's sort yeah. of the 20 quid that if something happens, it will get me out of a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. If you were an ice cream, what flavour would you be? Licorice. Oh, we've never had that before. I love that's, licorice ice that's, cream. That's, that's, <laughs> it's that's very gelato kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had that. What's your most used emoji? 
Oh, it's the it's the person that's on it, the head that's on its side with crying with laughter. That's the one I use the most. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. So, what has been the worst job you ever had? Oh, I've had quite a few really bad jobs, actually. I think the worst job was at a racetrack in Australia where I had to be there at four a.m. Be, oh my goodness yeah i think that was even though i love the horses i think it didn't last very long and i think that was but i i have had quite a few not very good jobs okay okay what was your least favorite food as a child and do you still hate it or do you love it now i think porridge <laughs> i hate porridge. porridge and i still sort of hate it but i have figured out a way you deal with it so I do eat it, <laughs> but I add a lot of stuff to it. This friend is, friend of mine was just like, that's not really porridge if you add that much stuff to it. But I'm like, I think it still counts. <laughs> that's, that's very ingenious. Okay. Okay. Last two questions. If you had to delete all but three apps from your phone, which ones would you keep? So I definitely keep uh, Google, Google Maps for sure. I would definitely keep um, WhatsApp, actually, in order to uh, to communicate, and the weather app, of course. Oh, there you go. That's good. That's really. <laughs> How good. does that compare okay. to other people? <laughs> Different. Different. I think I think you might be the first one to go for for Google Maps. Oh, I'm a I'm a total. Uh, I love mapping things out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But no, that's really good. That's really good. Right. And so if if Brian had been able to join us, which unfortunately he would have been unable to today, he always asks this as the final question. So you have to sing karaoke. What song do you pick? That was not one. No, no, that no. Wasn't, I was trying to work that out. Which, yeah, well, that wasn't my it's answer. It's not you, hum it, I work it out. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> um, five Get Overexcited by the House Martins. Wow. Okay. I love well, we that, that one before either. That's really good. That's really good. Joy, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely my pleasure to to reconnect with you. How can our listeners learn more about you, the banker, and you know, and, and maybe yeah, what you get up to? It's great. So of course you can visit the banker at thebanker.com and you can follow me on Twitter or X as it's now called at Joy McKnight and then also on LinkedIn as well. But yeah, please join our community on thebanker.com. Fabulous. Thank you again. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. This was a lot of fun. Joy mentioned the article she'd written back in 2018 entitled, Will the Digital World Solve the Identity Crisis? She's kindly put this in front of the paywall on the Banker website. There'll be a link in our show notes. As always, if we can help you in any way, please reach out to us. We're easy to find on LinkedIn. Just search for Brian Hayes or Matthew O'Neill at VMware. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew O'N or our podcast on Twitter at dbtbpod or our show website at don'tbreakthebankpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. Please join us again next time and do take care. <laughs>